Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. Good morning, friends. Uh, it's good to worship together on this hot summer day, uh, singing praise to God, opening His Word, and uh, getting to work and seeing what He has for us this morning. I'm excited to share with you today. Uh, excited that you're here with us at, at Outward. Uh, we're a church that seeks to love Jesus and live outward. We believe that His truth, as we apply it to our lives, uh, it, it shapes the way we interact with our city and our families and every interaction we have, we believe that it makes a difference for us. And that's what we're about as a church. Um, and so if you're just getting to know us, we hope that that is the message that you received today. We hope that that rings out true and that uh, you, will, uh, you will have left here having met with Jesus and experienced him this morning. Today we're going to be in the book of 1 John. Uh, Pastor Matt started us on a series last Sunday. We're going to be uh, going through this book of 1 John for the next 10 weeks or so, kind of finishing out the summer, looking at John's first letter. John wrote three letters. Well, this author, John, uh, we know wrote three letters, and, and so we're just going to focus on this first letter. And uh, as Matt pointed out last week, 1 John uh, had, had real implications for the people, obviously, in, in John's day, uh, the early Christian church, but it has real implications for us today. Uh, first John, there's some big themes that come out in this book, and you know, John even explicitly says, I am writing this to you because, and he gives a few reasons kind of spread throughout the book. You know, last week, uh, we, we, we saw in verse 4 where John says, I'm writing these things so that our joy may be complete. There's, there's a pastoral concern that John has for the people he's writing to. He wants our joy to be complete, our experience with God to be made full. Uh, today, we're going to see John make a statement about how he's writing this letter for us that we will stop sinning. He wants us to live as Christians. He wants us to behave in right ways and according to our faith. Another big reason that John writes this book is to correct doctrine. The church that John was writing to was, was uh, being infiltrated by doctrines that were, that were kind of distorting the message of the gospel, that were leading to some divisions in the church. And so John's writing to, to bring those back and to affirm and encourage the people who were holding on to the correct doctrines. And John writes in his letter about how we can be assured of our salvation in Christ, how we can know that our standing with God is in the right place. He addresses that several times through the book. So, so these are big issues that we wrestle with today in our lives and here in our church, you know, issues of, of am I saved? How do I become saved? And then am I actually saved? We, we wrestle with doubt and we wrestle with these ideas of like, how can we be sure? We wrestle with doctrines that come at us, things that, that, that seek to distort the truth and, and distract us and sway us from the clear message of the gospel and scripture. And so as we look at today's passage, I want you to be thinking of those themes. It actually addresses all four of those themes, kind of all of those big ideas are embedded in some way or another in this passage we're going to read this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 1. And I just encourage you, if you've got a Bible, leave it open to this passage. You can kind of see how things are laid out in context. You see how it, how it interacts with the verses that came before and the verses that are going to come after it. Uh, we're in the Bible app, too. So if you have the Bible app on your phone, uh, you can look us up there, and the passage is loaded right up in there. But we're going to read uh, starting in 1 John 1.5. And as you're maybe still turning there, I want you to pay attention to a couple things. John likes to write using dichotomies. He likes to write using contrasts. Uh, things that kind of are opposed to each other, because John, as we are going to see throughout his book here, he, he, uh, 
he doesn't leave a lot of middle room to have gray area. He says it's either this or it's this. It's, it's um, dark or it's light. It's truth or it's lie. It's, it's fellowship or it's separation, right? There's, no, there's not a lot of middle ground when it comes to John. And so pay attention and, and look for these dichotomies as they come out in our text uh, this morning. But let's, let's pick it up in, in 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And going on in chapter 2, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, John was writing in a lot of ways in this passage to address some, as I said earlier, some doctrinal errors, some heresies that had worked their way into the church. And so this whole passage is kind of him dealing with three of these heresies, and we're going to get to each one of those. Um, but this passage picks up where Matt left off last week, basically God saying, or, or John saying, God has made manifest to us the truth. We can know what God has given to us. And so he picks it up and says, and here's the truth. Right? And so he says, we've got to establish what we think about God to be right. We've got to get to this place of right understanding, right knowledge of God before we can address our doctrine, because our doctrine is built on our understanding of God and our relationship to him. And so he, he sets this up in the first few verses of the chapter, and then in verse 5, he picks it up and says, this is the message. Here it is. We've heard from him. It's not something we fabricated. It's not something that any human has come up with. It's, it's from God. He's made manifest to us that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. This is the thesis that John is working with for the rest of our passage today. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And I'm going to say that phrase about 20 times today. So hopefully by the time you walk out of here this morning, you'll have that in your head Right? And this is going to shape the way we view God, the way we think about God. He is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. When it comes to describing God, our, our language, our words are limited. You know, we try, we, we, we say things like glorious, majestic, uh, awesome, right? We, we try to, to grasp at the scope of God's character, in his essence, but we, we know that 
our language fails at a certain level because we, we just don't have the capacity to describe God. And so, Scripture a lot of times uses imagery and metaphor to help us understand what is God like. All throughout Scripture, we see imagery of light and darkness used in relationship to God and opposition to God. You go back to the very beginning uh, in Genesis 1, the very first words that were spoken in all of existence. God says, let there be light, right? Light emanates from God in the very act of creation. Isaiah 9-2 says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. John 1, Jesus talking, he says, the light shines in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Actually, Jesus wasn't saying that. He's talking about Jesus. John 8, 12, this is Jesus talking. He says, I am the light of the world. Jesus claiming himself as God says, I am this light. And then in Revelation 21, when we, we see the end of all things and, and those who have, have, uh, who have been saved are with God together in the new city that he's going to establish, uh, we see that there's no sun and there's no moon in heaven because the glory of God is our light. And so the Bible uses this metaphor of light and darkness to describe God. And I think that God has done that. He's inspired the authors of Scripture to use that language because we understand light and we understand darkness. We understand this, this kind of this uh, embedded idea in us of this battle between dark and light and good and evil and, and morality in that sense. It, it makes its way into our stories. It makes its way into our movies. My son uh, is seven years old, and uh, to say that he's going through a bit of a Star Wars phase right now would be an understatement. I'll, I'll just say, I hope you have someone in your life who feels about you the way my son feels about Star Wars. <laughs> you, will be, you will be loved. I mean, you get, in, you get into a conversation with, with, my, with my son, uh, you are going to hear incessantly about lightsaber colors and who would win in a lightsaber battle between this person and this Jedi and reactors on the Starkiller base and battles on who knows what planet, right? But my son loves Star Wars, and we love Star Wars, right? We love these stories because at their core, there's this conflict, there's this tension between light and between dark, right? The light side and the dark side, right? But this, it's not just in Star Wars, it's everything. Every story kind of at its core has this, this moral understanding that there's good and there's bad, and there's the good guys versus the bad guys. C.S. Lewis uses this understanding when he's, he's kind of giving an apologetic for the existence of God in some of his writing. He said, you know, he talks about how we have this embedded into our, into our understanding of the world, that there is a right and that there is a wrong, and it's because we have that embedded in us that proves God's very existence. So we understand this idea of, of light versus dark, and, and what's happening in the Bible when, when they use this idea of light, what, it, what, what is going on there is it's describing an attribute of God known as His holiness. Light is, is something that we, it's difficult to describe, but it is something so pure, so unique, 
that it's the best illustration a lot of times that the Bible authors use to describe God's holiness. His holiness is this attribute that we use to describe God that, that is basically God's otherness or God's godness. The, the, it's the attribute that, that means he can only be fully defined by himself. God himself is the only one who can accurately define himself. And so we... we we look at this idea of holiness, and when we, when we start to consider God's holiness, there's a response that comes from us. We look at Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah, when he has this vision of God seated on his throne, his immediate reaction is to fall to his knees and say, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips because of God's holiness. When he comes face to face with the, just the ultimate otherness, the essence of who God is. He recognizes and we recognize when we start to get in this place of realizing God's holiness that we are, we are not that. That is something very, very separate from our understanding of ourselves. And while holiness is an attribute of God, in a lot of ways, it's, it's kind of God's essential attribute. There's lots of ways we can describe God, lots of attributes that we give to Him, and we are pretty comfortable with some of them. Right? We like talking about God's love. Uh, we like talking about God's patience. We like talking about how uh, God is um, slow to anger. He's kind. These things, these things are comforting for us. We like talking about these particular attributes of God. We, we struggle sometimes, I think, with some of the other attributes of God, His, his wrath, His judgment, right? His, his jealousy. These are all things that Scripture attributes to God, and the reason all of these things are appropriate for God to have is because He's holy. They all flow out of His holiness. That is His essential attribute, and so His judgment finds its moral authority in His holiness. R.C. Sproul uh, puts it this way in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He says, God's justice is never unfair. It's never whimsical. It's never tyrannical. It's impossible for God to be unjust because His justice is holy. So as John writes to us, he starts by helping us get to an understanding of God in His holiness. We have to establish that before we start talking about right doctrines. And so, John moves on into uh, verse 6, and what we're going to see in verses 6 verses 8, verses 10. Again, if you're looking at your passage here, he's addressing three doctrinal errors, three heresies that have worked their way into the church. And so he's going to just kind of tick them off one at a time. He's going to go through first heresy, explain the issue, the problem, and then he's going to give the right doctrine that, that counters it, right? Bad doctrine, good doctrine. Bad doctrine, good doctrine. He's going to do that three times. And so, in verse 6, he says, if we say that we have fellowship with him, now, notice what he says here. Each one of these, he starts with the phrase, if we say. He doesn't say, now, these people, they say. He doesn't say, there are some, can you believe this? There are some who have said this. Now, he, there's a humility expressed in, in his writing here. There's, there's kind of a pastoral element to John's writing here. He's saying, no, if, if we say there's, there's, a, there's an understanding here that all of us are susceptible to incorrect uh, doctrine. There are going to be times when we're going to be tempted to be swayed, where there's going to be a teaching that hits us and it's going it's to feel right. 
Um, and, and so none of us is, is uh, immune to incorrect doctrine at times in our life. And so my prayer for all of us is by God's grace that we stay rooted in Christian community with people who love God and love the scriptures, right? That we stay, uh, you know, in biblical community at a, at, here at Outward or whatever local church you're from where the Bible is taught, right? Where right doctrine is protected. That's my hope for us. But, but John says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. It's impossible to have fellowship with God if we are in darkness. Why? Because God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John was writing uh, at a particular group of people, the Gnostics, who they believe that, that our spiritual selves and our physical selves were two distinct things. They, they didn't have any interaction with each other. And so there was this belief that uh, I can be right with God in my spiritual sense, but it doesn't affect my physical body. It doesn't affect the way I actually live my life. And this is a very real uh, a very real thing today in our world, whether or not people actually refer to themselves in that sense. Uh, we know that there are people who say they love God, who say they're Christians, who say they're in fellowship with God, but we look at their lives and we say, there's no way. Right? I mean, how many times has the, the charge of hypocrisy been leveled against uh, us as Christians in general, right, and particular uh, individuals within Christianity that we know of? All the time. And there are times when it is appropriate because we say that we have fellowship with God, yet we're walking in darkness. And John says, if we're doing that, we lie. We don't practice the truth. I'm afraid that um, in American Christianity at times we have made it a little bit too easy to be a Christian or to say that we're a Christian. We, uh, it, it's, it's, easy for us to want to compartmentalize our faith or our lives. And we say, okay, I've got my relationship with God, I go to church, um, and then I'm going to live my life. And there's no interaction between what we say we believe about God and the relationship we say we have with God and our lifestyle, the way we go about living our lives. And um, take an honest look at yourself and see, does my life reflect the light. Does my life reflect a lifestyle that shows I'm in a relationship with God? What, what are the things you post online, right? If you, go, if you go on your Facebook newsfeed and just scroll down the things you've posted for the last couple of weeks, right? What, what's the general sense that you get? Is this something that is, is God-honoring, is, is uh, reflecting the light? Or you look at the things that you're kind of known for in this sense, you say like, Man, I'm reflecting darkness. I'm, I'm not reflecting the character and the essence of God in my life. There are, there are um, from time to time, there are folks who will email us here at the church and say, hey, I want to come check out your church. Uh, I want to know if uh, I'll be accepted at your church. Um, and then go on to describe whatever sinful lifestyle it is that they're, that they're living. And I always, if, if the email were to stop there, I would always want to respond, like, yes, come. We want you to be here in community, in fellowship, and, and receive Jesus and, and understand his gospel. But oftentimes, the email goes on and it says, 
And just so you know, I've prayed about this a lot, and God's okay with the way I'm living my life. You know, basically saying, I want to come, I want to know if you're going to accept me, but don't tell me to change how I'm living my life. Because me and God, we, we talked about it, right? We, we've got an understanding. John says, you're lying. If your life doesn't line up with what Scripture describes as the way to live in God's will, you're lying. You're lying to yourself. You're lying to those around you. Because God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. So John gives the incorrect doctrine, and then he gives the correction to the doctrine in verse 7. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Pretty simple. If we're walking in darkness, we're not with God. If we're walking in the light, we are with God. Right? We have that fellowship with Him. But did you see what John says there, actually? He says, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. He doesn't immediately say, we have fellowship with God. That's kind of implied, and then John goes on to describe that later in the passage. But, but I think there's, there's something significant about the fact that John says, we have fellowship with one another. Because when we, John's trying to communicate, when we are in right fellowship with God, by extension, automatically, we're going to have fellowship with other believers. It's a package deal. When we are walking in the light as God is in the light, we are in fellowship with each other. We're in fellowship with the church. Now, I want to make something really clear here because it would be possible to read this passage and walk away from it thinking, I need to change the way I'm living, and so I need to stop doing the bad stuff and start doing the good stuff, right? And in a certain sense, that's what we're saying. That's what John's saying. But we must understand that our story as Christians is not a story of morals. We're not people who have good morals primarily. We're people who have good news, and that good news of Jesus has moral implications, but our morals are not the story. Living in the light is not something that we can just choose to do on our own. We're gonna, we're not gonna, we can't just say, I'm going to start walking the straight and narrow. I'm going to start living uh, in the light because uh, I want to be with God. We can't choose to do it on our own. The light isn't just simply morality. The light is God himself. And so in order to walk with God himself, God has to enable us to be able to do that. The light doesn't come from within us. It comes from God. Uh, John Stott says, the effect of the light is not just to make people see, but to enable them to walk. So the light is revealed to us and it's the act of us responding to that light, our lives being illuminated by God, that's what enables us to walk in His light. So if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship. Verse 8, John moves on to the second heresy. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So John here is, is addressing a, sectorant, a second incorrect doctrine. He says, if we have no sin, this is the idea of just denying the fact that we as people have a sin nature. We, there, are, there are those who 
uh, don't like talking about sin. They try to minimize the reality of sin. Uh, in fact, I was reading the other day, uh, this is a book by a Christian author for Christian people. And when it comes to defining sin, he kind of hemmed and hawed and got really apologetic. And this is what he said. He said, sins are fixations that prevent the energy of life, God's love, from flowing freely. They are self-erected blockades that cut us off from God and hence from our own authentic potential. And in some senses, I guess you could, you could say that's a way to describe sin, but it's pretty weak sauce, right? Like, when we start looking at the holiness of God and we start looking at the essence of what God demands to be in His presence, we realize that sin is more than just a failure to live up to our authentic potential, right? Sin is an assault on God's character. It's, it's in opposition to the very nature of God Himself. Sin is serious to the point that John says, if we say we don't have sin, if we say there's no sin nature, we are completely deceived. There's no truth in us at all. Our eyes are completely blinded to reality. And the especially sinister thing that happens here when we claim that we have no sin is essentially we're saying we're like God. When we say we have no sin, there's only one being in existence that that is true of. And by us saying that or thinking that or implying that, we are claiming to be divine in that sense. And so John says in, in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, by saying that we have no sin, we're claiming to be God, and that, in fact, keeps us separate from God. The fellowship is broken. But when we confess, when we acknowledge we are sinful. I am, I, am, I am drawn towards the things that are in opposition to God. When we acknowledge that, when we own that for our lives, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Think back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. This is when sin began, right? What was the, the, the kind of the, the, what happened there? The fellowship with God was broken because there was an attempt to be like God. And so when we come to God and we, we say, in essence, God, we are not you. We recognize you as the Holy One. We recognize you as Lord. We are, we are putting ourselves in the proper place and embracing the fact that we are fundamentally not God. That's the correct response to God who is light and in whom is no darkness at all, right? That is the correct response to God who is holy. And that's what walking in the light is. Walking in the light is a, a continual understanding of our place in relationship to God, our standing before God as not God and Him as true God. So what happens when we confess? says God is faithful and He's just. God is faithful. This means that He is true to Himself. He is a covenant-keeping God. 
He is not going to fail us. He's not going to withhold what He's promised to us when we confess. He's faithful, and He's just. That, That seems maybe a little bit out of place. Why would we talk about God being just if we're talking about our sins being forgiven? Where's the justice in that? John's going to go on and explain exactly how that works in a couple of verses, but the sin was paid for. The sin was laid on Jesus. God is just, and that can never be changed, right? He's always going to be true to his character, and so his justice played itself out so that we could be cleansed. Now, confession, there's there's a couple different ways we can think of confession. There's the general sense in which we confess that we are sinful people, just kind of this general acknowledgement that uh, we have sin. And you know, we do that every week. We come together and we sing songs that declare our need for God and, and declare God's holiness and declare uh, what Jesus has done on the cross and, and how that is applied to our lives. We, we take communion every week. We, we take the bread and the juice, acknowledging the depth of love that God has for us expressed through his sacrifice on the cross. So we, we confess in these general ways, but throughout Scripture, when, when confession is referenced, it's usually referenced in a way that is public, person to person. Our, our sin is not just kind of this general idea of, of um, thinking about, oh, I did some, some bad stuff and, and I'm going to uh, just think about it and then move on. It's, it's the act of actually naming your sin to someone, actually acknowledging and, and owning this sin was mine. I, I committed this sin. And, and this is difficult for us. I mean, I think on one hand, it's easy to to uh, say, yeah, I confess my sin all the time, but do you really, like, have someone in your life, anyone, that you are in a rhythm of confession, that you, that you are being invited to acknowledge your sin and invited to claim Jesus' forgiveness because you need it, right? Uh, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a community group leader, but do you have these rhythms of confession in your life? Is this built into your walk with God? John moves on to his third heresy that he's addressing in verse 10. And it's similar to the last one, but he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So this one is similar to the last one, but in, in a sense, it's a little bit more sinister, a little bit more prideful, because what we're saying is, yeah, we acknowledge that we have a sin nature. We can acknowledge that, but it doesn't apply to me because I haven't sinned, right? There is sin out there in theory, but I'm good. This is, this is pride. And, and in fact, John says, that whereas we're living a lie before or we're deceived and the truth is not in us before. Here he says, we make God a liar. And, and why is that? Well, because it's so evident throughout all of Scripture that all have sinned. No one is without sin. Psalm uh, 14 says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Isaiah 53.6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. We know that we've sinned. 
when we deny that we have sin in our lives. We're making God a liar. We're denying what is made really evidently clear through Scripture. And that can become troubling for us. It should become troubling for us as followers of Jesus who are seeking to live in the light, to live in ways that are according to God's will. And that can be a crushing truth for us. The, the idea that we would say, I'm following Jesus, so why do I still sin? Well, John goes on. And instead of, like in the, in the past, <coughs> sorry, uh, in the past, like how I cough right into the mic instead of away from the mic. Uh, instead of the past couple doctrines that he, he addressed, he, he would give the problem, or the, the bad doctrine and the good doctrine, just kind of matter of fact, state doctrine, state doctrine. Here, he kind of pauses a little bit and turns. Uh, if you look in, in chapter 2, verse 1, recognizing that we, we realize that we've all sinned, because it, to say that we've not sinned, we're, we're calling God a liar. So recognizing the reality of this, he, he says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He, he kind of pauses. Instead of just responding with, with right doctrine, he, he responds in a fatherly, pastoral tone. He says, I realize that this is crushing for us as followers of Jesus. This is difficult. But just to be clear, I am telling you, don't sin. Just to be clear, God doesn't want you to sin. Yes, you have to acknowledge that we have sinned and we will continue sinning, but stop it, right? Stop the sin. We need to kill it. It needs to be gone in our life. And he goes on and he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. When we come to that recognition that we have sin in our lives and, and when we're tempted to let that discourage us or get us into a place of frustration or doubt, remember this. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. What does an advocate do? An advocate is someone who speaks on our behalf. If, you, uh, if you've ever bought or sold a home, chances are you used a uh, real estate agent. And uh, a couple years ago, my, my wife and I sold a home that we owned. And the, there were some challenges involved with this particular sale and, and some things going into it. I was just kind of like, I don't know how this is going to work. I really don't know what I'm doing here. And I remember having a conversation with my, with my agent, and she was explaining to me, we are going to write these letters. We're going to negotiate. We're going to make these phone calls. We're going to do all this stuff. You don't have to do anything. And I remember just the relief of just being like, thank you, because I had no idea what I was doing. But there was somebody who was an advocate for me, getting paid to do it, right, but, but was advocating on my behalf, was, was doing what I didn't have the capacity to do. In another real sense, an advocate is someone who, who looks out for the well-being or the interest of the vulnerable, the helpless, those who can't take care of themselves. Uh, I have some good friends um, who just finalized the adoption of their daughter, who's about one and a half, I think, just a couple weeks ago. Um, and for the last year and a half, from the time this little girl was born uh, to, a, to a, a mom who was uh, addicted to drugs and a father who was absent, um, and to some other family members who were just unable to care for her, our, our friends who had just gotten certified as foster parents, 
took this girl home, and they have been her parents for the last couple years, and, and what they have done is they have advocated for her over and over and over again. They have looked out for her. They've had her interest. She's in the most helpful posi helpless position you can be in, and they have stepped in and advocated on her behalf. We have an advocate, Jesus. Jesus. And significantly, what is John, how does John describe Jesus, our advocate? He describes him as the righteous. Why does that matter? Why is it important that Jesus is the righteous? Well, do you remember back in verse 9 when God says that we will be cleansed from all unrighteousness? In order for that to happen, our advocate needs to be fully righteous. Because here in verse 2, John goes on and he says, He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus, the righteous, is our propitiation. Now, that word propitiation, uh, that would be what my dad would call a 50-cent word. I don't know why we ever needed to pay for words, but, but a big word like that, my dad, that's a 50-cent word. So propitiation is a 50-cent is a theological term, right? And, and what's, in, what's embedded in this idea here is, is a, a to, an atoning sacrifice, a sacrifice that atones or takes the place of someone else. And so Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. Jesus the righteous is our propitiation. Now, there have been, there have been uh, at times, people who have had trouble with I this idea that Jesus would, would uh, take our sin and atone for it by dying, and that that would somehow appease the wrath of God. There's, there's people who would say, that, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound uh, like God. Well, there is there's a pagan understanding of this idea of propitiation, where we, we, you think of like the, um, you know, the, the angry God with the, you know, hair coming out of his nose or whatever, and, you know, fire coming out of his ears, and sitting on a throne, and, you know, kind of the, the people groveling at his feet, offering, uh, offering uh, sacrifices to try to appease this God. That's not the image that the Bible is referring to when it talks about the propitiation of Jesus, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. And, and what's significant and what's different about this is that we are not the ones coming to Jesus or coming to God and offering a sacrifice. God is the one that initiates the whole transaction. God says, I love these people so much that I am going to step in and I'm going to orchestrate this act of atonement and this act of redemption. And he is the only one that could have done it. God himself is the only righteous one qualified and worthy to be our propitiation. And because it was God that did it, not some piddly uh, pagan mythical deity, because it was God who is light and in him is no darkness at all, the propitiation that he did for us was powerful enough, John says, for the whole world. Not just us, but everyone. That's the message we preach. God's sacrifice is enough for your neighbor. God's sacrifice is enough for the coworker or the good friend that you are reconnecting with that you haven't talked to in a long time that you hope comes to know Jesus. God's sacrifice is big enough for all of them. Now, we're not saying that everyone is saved. That's not what John is saying. That's not what we teach. We, we say that God's sacrifice was potent enough, powerful enough to have the ability 
to, to cover all sin. And it had to, right? Because when we receive Christ's sacrifice, it covers our past, our present, and our future sin. Every sin was covered in Christ's atonement for us. So then how do we know that Christ's atonement has been applied to us? How do we know that we have it placed on our behalf? John goes on, and we're going to wrap up these last few verses here. John says in verse 3, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Verse 4, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. Kind of repeating what he says earlier. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. We can know we've received the propitiation for our sins when the atonement of Jesus has been effective in our lives, when our lives look different. When, when the way of our life, the trajectory of our life, when, when we look at that and we say, if I were left to my own devices, how would my life go? And if we look at our life and say, if, if God has gotten a hold of my life and taken it his direction, what would that look like? Right? And we take stock and we look at our lives and say, am I living in a way that is in accordance with God's commandments? Because, and, and the reason John gives us this test is because he knows, and we know, that when we just simply say that we trust God with our heads, that's one thing. But in order for it to actually have any effect on our life, we have to say we trust Him with our heart as well. Trusting God with our head combined with trusting God with our heart is ultimately what's going to affect the work of our hands. Our hands are not going to be um, effective for God. We're not going to be able to be obedient to God if we haven't given Him our head, we haven't given Him our heart, confessed Him with our, our mouth and believed in our heart that He is Lord. And, and John says that when this happens, when our life looks different, when we're living out the things that God has called us to do, we're living in the light as He is in the light, the love of God is perfected. It's, it's the gospel has taken root in our lives, and it's done its work. The, the gospel is never designed for us just to receive it and then feel good about ourselves and our relationship with God. The gospel is designed to transform us so that we live in such a way that God's commandments can be seen and that His, His will is on display for the world and that we're displaying Him through our very lives. That's when the love of God is perfected. Its, it's, it's intent has been realized in us. And so John uh, finishes this, this section out, and he says, by this we may know that we are in him. Verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The clearest way we see God's holiness on display is in the life of Jesus. When, when John says, walk in the same way in which he walked, he's referring to Jesus here. So what's the mark of a true Christian? Well, it's to walk as Jesus walked. And how did Jesus walk? Well, he tells us in John 6. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Can we say that confidently? Are our lives being lived in a way that, that says, it's not my will, God, but it's, it's your will. 
The reality is I, I think that most of us probably have a hard time saying that with full confidence. And, and I think, and I think what John realizes here is the reason we, the, the, the reason why is that we don't have a fully developed sense of God's holiness. We don't have a fully developed sense of just how pure God is. When you struggle with sin and when you find yourself um, failing to, uh, failing to, walk in the light, failing to abstain from sin. I don't think that it's due to lack of desire often. I think it's due to a lack of an understanding of God's glorious holiness. Because when we have a growing understanding, a deepening understanding of, of God's essential attribute of holiness, there's going to be no room left in our life for sin. In him is light, and there can be no darkness at all. So the more we let ourselves see the glory of God, the more we let ourselves see God's holiness and embrace it, there's not going to be darkness because there can't be. When we walk in the light, it's going to lead us to repentance. So today, my hope for all of us is that our knowledge and our understanding of, of His holiness, of God as light, will continue to increase more and more, that we'll be able to see Him for who He is, and that'll lead us to repentance, and it'll lead us to confession, and ultimately lead us to faith in Him. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, our desire is to walk with you. Our, our desire is to glimpse your holiness in a way that, that overwhelms us and, and invites us to live and walk in your presence. Lord, we confess that uh, we need you that we are incapable of walking in the light of our own accord, but it's only when you illuminate for us that we can walk with you, that we can have fellowship with you. Father, reveal to us the areas of our lives where um, we need to confess, where maybe there's been sins that we have... Uh, been, been holding off acknowledging because of what that means. Maybe we feel like that's going to prevent us from fellowship, but God, you say when we confess, we have fellowship with one another. That's a promise. Lord, may we be able to trust you in that. May we be able to um, really understand and, and, and just believe that your will is best, that walking in the light is, is the way that you would have us live, and you're going to be faithful in that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.